Hi guys, how are you? <laughs> it's good to see you. Yeah, like, uh, like Elisha said, uh, or actually Connor, we are finishing up our series in Second Peter tonight, and uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, my message tonight. I've been thinking about this for probably three weeks, and I've got to be honest, a lot of it is really heavy, but there's also a lot of beauty to what I get to talk about, so I'm really excited about that. Uh, really quick, I want to give you a sneak peek to next month. So next month, we're going to be starting a new series uh, called Relationships, and then like the subtitle to that would be Don't Waste It. So uh, we're going to talk about like, don't waste your singleness, don't waste your dating, and don't waste your marriage. And we're actually bringing in Tim Tyler and Paul for that, so we're, we're bringing in the heavy hitters. It'll be good. I, if you guys know anybody who would just be interested in that, I would encourage you to invite your friends. It's going to be a really good series, and I'm really excited for it. So, yeah, like, a, like, like we've been doing this month. So we're in Second Peter this month, and if, you, if you're new here tonight and you kind of haven't been tracking with us, Second um, Peter is the second leader, the second leader, the second letter that Peter wrote, and uh, it was specifically written to the church communities that Peter had already founded. In the situation that Peter was currently in, uh, he found himself in prison. He's at the end of his life, and he's under uh, the imprisonment of Nero, and uh, he's about to face execution. And so we called this series Remember because it kind of functions as Peter's farewell address to the churches that he uh, already founded. So um, each, each series, we've had like a different title, like Remember. The first week was Remember to Grow. Connor talked about Remember God's Promise. Uh, Shannon talked about Remember the Warnings and so on and so on. So uh, we're just going to jump right back in tonight, and we're going to end the book, and I'm really excited for uh, what God has for us. So, uh, But before we do that, let's just pray, and um, I invite you to pray with me as I pray, and then we'll get into it. God, thank you for uh, today. I thank you for the community of 710. I thank you that there is a place for young adults to uh, just come together who love you. I thank you that this is a place that is safe, uh, I thank you that you love us deeply, Jesus, and ultimately, Lord, we're, we confess that we're here to make much of your name, and uh, we also ask that you would form us through your word tonight, and that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, uh, and I pray that you would uh, make us into people that go out into our workplaces, uh, into the schools that you've put us, into the families that we're in, and that we would be doers of the word, that we'd be lovers of Jesus, and that it would all be to your glory. And it's in your name that we ask this, Jesus. Amen. So if you have your Bible, open up to 2 Peter um, chapter 3. And so um, if you weren't here with us last week, chapter 3 is kind of, uh, it's one big thought, and we split it into two messages. And so last week, uh, Matt talked about remembering the coming of Jesus. And uh, so if, if you have your Bible, open up uh, to chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 8, and I'm kind of going to get a running start at the passage that we're going to be at tonight. And um, so here's, here's, here's what's going on. Peter is writing to Christians, and these church communities that he's writing to, there's these people called false teachers, and, and Peter actually calls them scoffers um, in, in verse 3 of chapter 3. And, and these false teachers have come into the church, and they pretty much said, hey, Jesus said when he was alive that he was going to come back, but it's been like 30 or 40 years, where is he? And so therefore, they kind of like made up this lifestyle that you could live. Because Jesus is not coming back, you can kind of live however you want. And he responds to them by saying this. In verse 8, and I'm, I'm actually going to read out of the NIV, so if you're following along on your app, you can use your, uh, the NIV translation. 
Verse 8 says this, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With, a, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So in other words, uh, God doesn't run on our time. He runs on his time, and he has his purposes. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. So it's not us being patient with God, it's him being patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But regardless, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and done everything in it will be laid bare. It's this idea that everything at the end will be exposed before the Lord. Carry on in verse 11, this is where we're going to start today. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, since judgment is coming, what kind of people ought you to be? And this is the answer. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. We'll talk about this later, but I don't think that's actually, Peter's actually saying that God's going to bring this fiery storm that's going to destroy our universe. I think he's talking about a purifying fire that's going to purify the world of all evil. Um, verse, and then verse 13 says, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Verse 14, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. I don't know if you noticed when I read that, but three different times in that passage, Peter says, as you look forward to as you look forward to, as you look forward to. And so Peter is running with this assumption that the, the people he's writing to have this big, big love and passion and hope for the coming kingdom of God, this new heaven and this new earth that Peter's talking about. And, and what I really like about this is Peter's playing off of a principle that just, it's just true in life. And, and this is it. I'll put it on the screen for you, and it's worth writing down because it's kind of going to shape the rest of our message. And it's this, that what you hope for will shape what you live for. I'll say that again. What you hope for will shape what you live for. We all know this experience, right? So think about if you're in college right now, and let's just say you're getting a nursing degree. Um, if your goal is to graduate with a nursing degree, like Sarah right here, you've been studying all day, right? If your goal is to graduate with a nursing degree, it shapes the way that you live during your degree, Right? It shapes, you actually cut out free time to study, you pick certain friends that you can study with, and so for four years or however long your degree is, it's going to shape the way that you live because your hope is to get a nursing degree. Or you could use this, in, like if you had sports or anything, if you wanted to be a starter on the team, um, that during practice, it shapes the way that you practice. You work hard, you try to work harder than anybody there, you try to perfect your game, you try to do whatever you can because your hope is to be a starter. And that's exactly what Peter's talking about. He's saying, we need a hope of what's actually going to happen when Jesus returns. Because if we lose that hope, we're actually going to end up being shaped by a different one. Now then, when I thought about that principle, and I thought about the American church today, and specifically young adults, I, I realized this. We as Americans, and specifically young adults, we have a really hard time actually putting our hope in heaven. Think about it. In our culture, in our society, uh, it's hard for us to hope in the kingdom of God. And uh, I did this little survey with 25 young adults, 
in the survey just asked, how often do you think about heaven? Just how often do you think about heaven? And about 60% of young adults in this survey, and they're all Christians, said they really don't think about it that much. They really don't think about it that much, which is a challenge when our hope is supposed to be the very thing that shapes our lives. So I want to actually uh, put a question up on the screen that I want you to talk about around your tables, and I'll give you like three to five minutes, and this is the question. Why do American Christians struggle to get excited about heaven? And you can answer this, uh, what you just think in general, or maybe even you specifically, if there's like, there's just something that's difficult for you to actually get excited about it. So I'll give you like three to five minutes, and, uh, and then we'll bring it back and we'll talk about it. All right, I think you guys seem like you're done talking. All right, what did you guys, uh, what did you guys say? And we're going to do like we did last week. Feel free to just throw it out there. What would you guys say? Why do most American Christians struggle to get excited about heaven? There we go. Yeah, there's just like distraction. Distraction that's so ramped up that it keeps you from being present. Totally. That's great. What else did you guys say? Yeah, so suffering, pain, sadness kind of like brings you into life here and it's hard to think about anything else. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's great. What else? Brian, if this tell you said it. Totally. Like Sunday school, Jesus floating everywhere. And then, like, oh, but you said something good. Like, there's just, like, this, uh, like, heaven is so abstract of a concept that I, it, like, it's so un- unimaginable that I can't even think about it, really, and it's not tangible, so I just don't choose not to think about it. Yeah, totally. What about maybe one or two more? <clears throat> Yeah, it's like, what does that actually mean? It's a little scary, totally. Eddie, I think you had your hand up. Okay. Project your loud voice. (laughs) Gotcha. So we get so busy in our task that we forget about everything else. That's great. There's a, there's a few things that I wrote down as I was kind of thinking about it. Uh, the first thing I, that I, I put is, I feel like we shouldn't say this because we're Christians, but if we're going to be honest, we feel like it's going to be boring, you know? Like, uh, am I going to be singing Chris Tomlin songs for 
all eternity. It's like I can only handle two at 710, but like anything more than that. It's Connor's song choice. It's great. I love it. But anyways, this is a, the, uh, I can't get going like that. Anyways, but there's just this concept that uh, we feel like maybe it's actually not going to be as great as I think it is. Or if it is going to be great, it's just going to be a little adjustment to my life of what it's like here because it can't be that much better. Another thing that um, I, I wrote down is that just Amer- as Americans, we're just really comfortable. Like, we're just extremely comfortable. I was talking to uh, my professor, and he was like, our, our comforts in America have become a mountain so high in front of us that block our hope of the kingdom of God. Like, we're just like, we're so comfortable here. Why is there a need for a hope? So all that to say, here's what I want to do with this message. Because that principle is true that what you hope for will shape what you live for, and what Peter's about to talk to us about is like you have to, you have to look forward to your hope, and it has to be on the forefront of your mind. It has to be something that you're thinking about, or else you're just going to end up being shaped by something else. So here's what I want to do. I want to, just, I want to answer two questions, two questions tonight, and, and these are the questions. One, what is our hope? Like, what is our hope? We've talked a lot about the, in this series about Jesus coming back, but we haven't talked a ton about, okay, well, what's actually going to happen when he comes back? So there's the question, what is our hope? And then the second thing that I want to uh, answer is, how should we live in light of that hope? So what is our hope and how we should live in light of that hope? Okay, here we go. First question, what is our hope? Turn to Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. Peter said in his passage that, we look forward to the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. And we look forward to the day of God. And in Revelation 21, 1 through 7, uh, the apostle John, which is, was simply just one of Jesus' apprentices, he lived, walked, and talked with Jesus just like Peter. And he's ministering to churches that are under Roman rule, that are experiencing persecution. And um, he actually gives us, in about seven verses, this beautiful picture of what the new heaven and new earth will actually be. And I'll say this right on the front end when I read it. I'm just going to read like all of it at once. And I just want you to kind of like take it in slowly and just like try to get what it's trying to communicate. There's a ton of imagery, but I really want you just to kind of get the thrust of the passage. So Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. This is what he says. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It's exactly what Peter says we're looking forward to. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And we'll talk about what that means in a second. And there was no longer any sea. By the way, I don't think Peter's saying that there won't be a sea in the new heavens and new earth. In Jewish thought, um, a, the sea represented where evil and chaos came from. So he's saying, in the new world, there won't be any evil. The chaos of this world, it won't be there. That is going to be removed. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And so Jerusalem, it was the place in the Old Testament where the king reigned from, it was where God dwelt, and it was where his people were. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order, the way we experience the world now of things is passing away. Verse 5, he who, who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. 
Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. They're unshakable. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. This beautiful picture of complete satisfaction in a world where no one can be satisfied right now. And then in verse 7, he says this, those who are victorious, which just means those who submit to Jesus and follow him to the end, will inherit all of this. It's yours. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. It's a beautiful picture of intimacy. But in verse 8, he says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So what is our hope? There's, there's really, like, I can't unpack. This, this chapter, literally, like, you could have three messages on it. There's so much to talk about there. But I really just, here's what I want to do, just for the sake of taking notes, and so you can write these things down and just kind of meditate on them as we move forward. I want to highlight specifically four things about the new heaven and new earth that we can hope in. Simple enough? Four things about the new heaven and new earth that we can hope in. So I don't know if you noticed this, but in these verses, God doesn't take us up to heaven, but brings heaven down to us. I'll say that again. God doesn't take us up to heaven at the end of the Bible, but at the end of the biblical story, God brings heaven down to us. Now, if you're anything like me, you were raised in a church environment or like you thought the goal of Christianity was for us to go to heaven when we die, right? But if you looked in Revelation 21, what did, it, what did he say? He says that the new Jerusalem, which in, in Paul's letters, he talks about it as the heavenly city. It's the city, it's this picture of the city and the place where God reigned from coming down to earth. So um, in verse... Uh, yeah, it's heaven coming down to earth. There is an author and a scholar named Michael Goheen, and in his book, it's actually the same, um, go Shannon, that's Shannon's professor. That's why he's so excited. <laughs> and, and mine. Anyways, all to say, um, this is what he says about this passage. He says, Revelation 21 is a vision of a creation completely restored to its original goodness. Revelation does not give us a picture of Christians suddenly transported out of this world to live a spiritual existence in heaven forever. The biblical story does not support the idea held by many Christians that the goal is to go to heaven when we die. John's vision in Revelation, indeed in the whole New Testament, does not depict salvation as an escape from earth into a spiritual heaven where human souls dwell forever. Instead, John has shown us that salvation... Now hold on to this, is, a rest, is the restoration of God's creation, a new earth. The redeemed of God will live in resurrected bodies within a renewed creation, free from sin and its effects. Now, if you were tracking with me in Second Peter, you may have been a little confused by this, because Peter says everything's going to be destroyed. There's going to be this refining fire. So is God, like, destroying everything? Or is this restoration? What's happening? And so the real question here is really, is God going to blow up the world that we already live in and just like remake a new one and start all over? Or is he taking the world that he already made, the world that he already loved, and remaking it into what he already intended it to be? And I would say that's what the biblical story says. Because in Acts 3.21, Peter is speaking to his fellow Israelites who were Jewish, who had a very 
earthy view of heaven, if you would take it that way. And this is what he says about Jesus. In Acts 3.21, he says, Heaven must receive him, that is Jesus, until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. So that's, that's what I would say. That's what heaven is. And you may ask, okay, well, so what? Well, so what? Well, here's what I think. God isn't coming to take you and just go to an imaginary place that you can't already imagine. I get so excited about this because when I think about it and what the significance of it, what it's trying to say, he's saying God is coming down to earth to restore life that you're already experiencing. Think about that for a second. The life that you're already living, he's going to restore. He's perfecting. It's a very earthly life. It's this picture that Jesus is here with us on the earth, and we're reigning with him forever with everything restored, everything made new, everything beautiful. The second thing we learn in this passage is that uh, God himself will be with us, which means that Jesus himself will be with us. This is probably one of my favorite things to talk about because one of uh, a thought experiment that I do quite often is... Um, like, have you ever thought about, we talk about all, like, the, like this Christian stuff, like, Jesus is coming back, and we just kind of, like, we know the lingo, some of us, because we've been Christian so long, but have you ever really thought about that one day you will actually be with him? One day you're actually going to be with him. And in, in, in Revelation 21, there's this beautiful picture where it's just, like, extreme intimacy, where, like, he's going to be our God, and we're going to be his people, and it's this beautiful reflection and picture of God's love and that Jesus' desire is to actually be with us. We view God so often as like he's frustrated and eventually he's going to come back and like save everybody and he's going to do it begrudgingly, you know? But just to be able to sit down and be like, man, I actually get to sit across like the hall, like the couch, whatever, whatever it's going to look like, and I'm actually going to be able to sit with Jesus, and, like, I'll see his, his hairstyle, his eye color, his facial expressions. There will actually be interaction. And it's just this picture of, like, extreme intimacy with him. Like, that God longs to be with you more than you probably long to be with God. This beautiful pursuit of love. And we get to live in a world where Jesus is present with us. The third thing that we learn about our hope is that God himself will personally remove all of your suffering. And not just that suffering from the world will be gone, but he, what does he say? He says that he himself will wipe away every tear. And this is by far the hardest uh, thing to actually be excited about sometimes as American Christians because we talked about our comfort and that we're really comfortable here. And we, if we live in a society that tries to mass suffering by creating a bunch of comforts, a bunch of comforts, so that when the promise of suffering uh, being released and expelled from God's world and from your life comes, it, it's, sometimes it's hard to grab onto. <clears throat> but I would say no one can escape suffering. No one can escape suffering. You experience relational suffering. You experience uh, suffering of your own sin, of decisions you've made. You experience people sinning against you. And you can just look at our world and our, and our world suffers, and it's just this beautiful picture of God coming in this intimate picture of a father kind of taking his son and wiping his tears away, and, and there will be no more suffering ever. 
what a gift that will be. The last thing that we learn is that the reign of Jesus will be fully acknowledged in all the world. That the reign of Jesus will be fully acknowledged in all the world. Now, I look at this and I love this because I try to imagine a world, and and think about this for a second. Imagine a world where everybody only obeyed Jesus, which means everybody only loved their neighbor as they would love themselves. (laughs) Imagine going to work. And your boss loved you (laughs) as he would love himself. Imagine going to school and the teacher loved you as as he would love or she would love himself. Imagine a world where people are unified around the the whole mission and purpose of making much of Jesus and and loving each other. It's just this beautiful picture of the reign of Jesus being fully acknowledged in our life. All right, the second question that we're going to answer is, how should we live? In light of that, how should we live? Because what you hope for shapes what you live for. So we have this beautiful picture of a restored creation with with God with us, with our suffering gone, where the reign of Jesus is fully acknowledged. And this is what's coming. Therefore, how should we live? Jump back with me to 2 Peter. And uh, let's read verses 11 through 14. And I really just want to focus on uh, how Peter says we should live. Verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, and he's talking about judgment, the purifying fire, he says, what kind of people ought you to be? This is what he says, you ought to live holy lives and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Now jump down to verse 14. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found, and I want you to sit on that word, found, what? Spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. See, Peter, he's not concerned about how Christians are living while Jesus is gone necessarily. He is concerned about that, but he's more concerned about how his people are going to be found when Jesus comes back. Does that make sense? So I, I always, the first thing, the illustration that I thought of um, when uh, Peter, when I read this was, it's kind of like when uh, my brother and I were younger and my mom and dad would say like, hey, uh, you know, we're going to run to the store, we're going to be back in a while, just make sure that you kind of like take care of the house, steward this place well, love each other, try not to like fight one another and kill one another while I'm gone. But, but when I come back, I expect you to be doing what I told you to be doing, right? And there's this one time, which is kind of funny, this does have nothing to do with the message, but my parents had a garage sale and they made all this, all this money. For us, it was a ton of money. We were like five or seven, and my parents came back, and we took all the money they made, and we were just like, this is $20 for you, $20 for me. We're just separating all the money, and we're like, Mom and Dad, thank you so much for all the money that you gave us. So they came back, they're like, listen, what are you guys doing? You can't have all that money. It was pretty funny. (laughs) Not as funny. It was funny in my world. Anyways, (laughs) all that to say, Peter's concerned about how how God's people are going to be found when he comes back. So this is what he says. He says he wants us to live holy, godly, spotless, blameless lives and at peace with God. Holiness, this is what holiness means. Sometimes we talk about like holiness we're like, this just means that like I just need to pray a lot and read the Bible a lot. Like what does this actually mean? Holiness means utterly unique. And godliness means representing God in the world. And so what Peter's concerned about is when you have a, a view of your future and of the life that you will live in that future, He's expecting you to already live that life now. Not because you have to, because it's, because it's the life that God created us to live. A holy life is a life of joy. It's a life of, um, of beauty. It's a, it's a life of, 
distinction from the world, like God's intention for his people have all, has always been that he would take a people out of the world to live a life that would reflect the goodness of his life to everyone else. And godliness, it means representing God or living like God would in the world. So I was thinking about this. I was like, man, there's some serious questions that we need to be asking about ourselves. And I, I think about this, like if Jesus were to come back right now, how would he find our community of 710? Like, would he find 710 as a community that is, like, utterly unique from the world around them? Like, a community of people that is just seeking to be devoted to Jesus, living under his reign, loving one another, caring for each other's needs? Would he see a community of people who are representing God in the city? People of service, a people of, for caring for the poor and vulnerable? Or would he see a community of people loving themselves? And even personally, if you, if you start asking these questions of like, you know, am, am I holy? Just, just do a thought experiment about your own work or school or place where God has you. Would you say that people say of you that you're utterly unique? And not just because that you're unique because you're unique, but because you're shaped by Jesus and formed by Jesus and your life is just different. Or if the people that know you and you're the only representation of Jesus in your workplace or your school, is it reflected in how you love your coworkers? Is it reflected in how you love your boss? Like, do you participate in the gossip? Do you participate in all the same things that your coworkers or schools or friends or whatever it is for you? Do you represent Jesus? Are you holy? Are you godly? <clears throat> and then when he says this, he says, he wants us to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. Um, I was thinking about this, and I don't, want, I, want, I don't want you to hear this message and go, okay, Peter's saying, this is what Peter's saying, that I need to like earn God's approval so that when he comes back, I'm happy. That's not true. Romans 5.1 says that we experience peace with God through Jesus. Period, end of story. But... Jesus changes people. And that when you come into relationship with God, you come into um, a beautiful relationship and God fills you with his Holy Spirit and he changes you. The first message that we talked about in this whole series was that grace was given to you so that you could grow in in godliness and godliness being growing, growing in God's own life and love. And so what Peter is concerned about is do you, when you come back, are you going to reflect the holiness and godliness that actually marks God's people? One, as a community, but also as individuals. So here's, here's where we're going to end. I just want to ask why. Why should we live this way? Because we talked about what you hope for is what you live for. So we know what our hope is. We know we need to live. But here's why. And this is where it gets a little heavy. And so Look at Peter's motivation in verse 11. This is what he says. This is why we are to be holy and godly. Verse 11, he says, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? So somehow there's a connection from everything's going to be destroyed, therefore you need to live a holy and godly life. And here's, here's motivation number one to live a holy and godly life that Peter is, is, um, is writing. He says, because only expressions of holiness will remain on the earth when Jesus returns. I'll say that one more time. Because only expressions of holiness will remain on the earth when Jesus returns. 
Peter, he, he describes the final judgment of God being this purifying fire. And um, previously in last week's message, uh, if you were here, he, he compares the judgment of God when Jesus returns as the same kind of judgment when Noah uh, was walking the earth and the earth was filled with wickedness and God's like, hey, build an ark, Noah, because I'm going to judge the earth. I'm going to flood it. And Peter says that God sent the flood and it destroyed the earth. And what did the flood do? The floodwaters came and it wiped away what was evil so that the righteous would remain. And that's exactly what Peter's saying here. The purifying fire, it's this metaphorical way of saying that the purifying fire is going to come. And only expressions of holiness, only things that make God's world beautiful will last. I came across this quote, and uh, you can read it. It says this. The purifying fire of the final judgment will be a removal uh, of anything and everything that ruins God's world so that a renewed world of beauty, love, and justice will continue on for all eternity. This world will be ruled by Jesus and filled with his goodness. So Peter's just saying, listen, when Jesus comes back, be found holy. Because he says previously in in verse 7 of chapter 3, that the ungodly will perish in destruction. So to be found holy. And ultimately, the only holiness that we can have is in relationship with Jesus. And he forgives us, and now we live a life reflecting his holiness. The second reason is that because we, we represent Jesus to the world. Have you, ever thought, have you ever thought much about that Jesus has chosen to attach his name and reputation to us? Like if you really think about that, the significance of it? Like, God has chosen Christians as the people that he would attach his own name and reputation to. So it's kind of like my dad used to say this thing to me in sports. I don't know if it was helpful, but he would say, make sure you play like a Casperson out there. And I'd be like, what does that mean? Are you trying to say like you're really good or something like that? And he, and anyways, all that to say. But he was trying to communicate like you represent the Casperson name when you're out there. And what Jesus is, what Peter is saying is, like, as God's people, you represent the name of Jesus. And, and, and he has brought you into his family, and he has brought you into his kingdom, and you're supposed to live under his reign. So when you're out in the world, who do you represent? Like, at, like it comes back to the question that we said earlier. Like, do you live a life that reflects the name of Jesus and, ref, and reflects his rule? I like to think about this. Uh, it's probably my favorite uh, just kind of way of thinking about it, but I'd like to think about the church, Jesus's people, as like a movie preview. What is a movie preview? It's live footage of what the actual movie will be. So for the church, I think of our shared lives together, like my small group when we interact with each other, when I come into this room and how we interact with each other, like this is a live preview of what life will actually be like when Jesus comes here. And we're called to live that life now. And it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's beautiful and it's humbling. It's beautiful and it's humbling. Because I'm like, man, the God of the universe has chosen me and these, his people around the world, and we get to represent him to the world. What a privilege. But how humbling. <laughs> I will never be able to do that perfectly. And thank God for the grace of Jesus. And thank God that he's committed to his people to help us and that he's given us everything that we need for a godly life. And so with that, I just want to encourage you guys tonight. If, um, if you don't know Jesus, um, I want to read uh, verse, look with me at verse 15, and this is where we're going to end. 
This is what we keep in mind as we live a life shaped by our hope of the kingdom of God. And I'm just going to read the first part of the verse. He says, bear in mind, right? The future is coming. You have a mission to accomplish and to live out until Jesus comes back. But keep in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. And so here, here's my, my call to you if you're not a follower of Jesus. I would just ask you, and I would just give you an invitation to consider Jesus. And consider that his delay in coming isn't him getting bored with the world. It's not him, like, having better things to do and he, like, forgot about us. He's very, like, intricately involved in what's going on here. In every detail of this night, in every detail of your life, he is involved. But he's waiting, and he wants his people to live out his purposes in the world so that people like you can come and experience his own life. Because the patience of God, it's so that you would come to know him. Because he's not willing that anyone would perish. Matt talked about that last week. He's not willing that anyone would perish, and he wants you to experience his own life and love. He wants you to experience the world that he's going to make when he comes back here. He wants you to experience the intimacy that you can have, that you were created for with him, the satisfaction, all these things that you can't find in this life apart from him. He wants you to experience him. So let's, let's just pray together, and, um, and then we'll worship. Lord, thank you for today, and I just thank you for, um, God, I thank you for the warnings that you give us in Scripture, and as Shannon taught us uh, a few weeks ago, uh, your warnings are not meant to harm us, but they're actually meant to protect us, and so, God, when you call us to live holy and godly lives and to be found at peace with you, when you return, God, we take that seriously because we know um, it's a loving warning. And so, God, I pray for any of us who are um, maybe even self-deceived, uh, God, that you would open our eyes for, uh, to our need for Jesus. God, I pray for uh, those of us who um, even maybe are convicted tonight. Lord, I just pray that you would just remind, uh, remind your people of your grace and your mercy. And God, I pray that you would lead us into joy and that you would stick the hope that we have um, in front of our eyes so that it, it would shape the way that we live. So we ask this all in the name of Jesus, amen. We're gonna enter into a time of prayer around our tables really quick. And uh, I purposely didn't read the last two verses of 2 Peter, and because uh, I wanna use these verses to shape our prayer time. And I love these verses because it's kind of like Peter's final so what of the whole letter. And it's the last words that we have ever recorded of Peter before he passed and went with the Lord. And this is what it says. He says, therefore, dear friends, so I would say, therefore, 710, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then he says this, this is Peter's final words, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So here's, here's what I want us to pray around our tables. I just want us to ask God that he would just, he would keep us, that he would hold on to us, and that he would cause us to grow, and that he would give us the energy, the devotion, that we would use one another to seek growing and being formed by the Bible, by being formed by the Holy Spirit, being formed into a people of love, so that ultimately at the end of the day, 
Jesus is going to get the glory for everything. And so here's what I would just say. Pray that God would grow us as a community of 710 and to a people that look like love. And just pray that God would be honored, both now and for however long it takes until Jesus comes back. And then we'll sing and worship. You guys can go to pray. I've been staring at a road.